Well, our subject this evening is Revive Us, O Lord. We want to look at the book of Revelation, <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 14 to uh, 21. Jesus' church to the Laodiceans, uh, his letter to the church at Laodicea. Before we read the passage, I'd just like to give you a little background on um, Laodicea and things that people <clears throat> at the time that this was written would have known about uh, Laodicea. Laodicea, of course, is one of the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, it's here uh, in this map right here. Uh, Laodicea was a banking center. It was a place where people, they conducted banking, investments. It was also a place of textile vendors. They had a fabric industry where they sold textiles. And they also produced an ISAV <coughs> that was, excuse me, <coughs> they produced an ISAV that was sought out for the healing of the eyes. <coughs> so their economy had three parts to it, banking, textiles, and medical care. In 17 AD, there was an earthquake that pretty much destroyed the town, and the Roman Empire offered to send aid to the uh, town to help rebuild the town. But the leaders of uh, Laodicea <coughs> said, um, we don't need any help. We can rebuild the town ourselves. And so they refused help from the Roman government and rebuilt the town with their own, uh, their own resources. The main problem that Laodicea had was their water. Uh, they didn't have a good water supply. The water was brought in from the mountains uh, through conduits a long distance, and by the time it got there, it was lukewarm, and it had a bad taste. It was high in minerals, and it tasted bad. Now, just to the south of uh, Laodicea was Colossae, that's where the letter of the, to the Colossians was written, and they had good cold water. They were noted for their good cold water, and just north of Laodicea was Hierapolis. Hierapolis... Uh, was a place where there were hot springs, and there's still hot springs there today. Tourists go there and, and, um, and go to the hot springs. So that's, uh, those are the things that were common knowledge about Laodicea when this uh, letter was written to the Laodiceans. So let's read uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and naked and blind. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. 
He's talking here to a lukewarm church, a church that is neither hot nor cold. Um, and we look at this passage. We, first of all, he, he says who's speaking. Now, it makes a difference who's talking, right? Let's say that you're 14 years old and your younger siblings are out playing and uh, it's getting dark and it's about time for them to go to bed and your dad sends you out, says, tell, tell your, your brothers and sisters to come in. It's time to come in and go to bed. You go out there and they're really having a good time and you get there and you say to them, hey, it's time to come in and go to bed. What are they going to say? Who said so? And uh, if it's just you... Uh, they're going to keep playing, right? But if you say, Dad said so, that changes the picture. Now there's authority behind the message, and they're going to quit whatever they're doing, and they're going to come in because of who's speaking. Jesus is clarifying here who's speaking. He's saying, it's the Amen. It's the one, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. It's it's the Lord Jesus who's, who's speaking to them. So they know... This is the voice of authority. This is not just somebody giving their opinion about their church. This is Jesus himself speaking to the church at Laodicea. And then he tells them what he knows about them. He says, I know your works, and I know that you're lukewarm. Now, what would Jesus say if he walked in and, and he sat down beside you and kind of shook your hand and said, Hi, I'm Jesus. Um, um, I'm the creator of the universe. And um, I, I, know what, I, I, know, I know what you do. Yeah. How, how would you feel? Uh, what, would, what would he say about you? Uh, what would be his... Um, his uh, words about your life. And um, sometimes it's good for us to pause and think about that. Because we listen so much to what people say. And you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to listen to the praise of our fans and reject the criticism of our critics. And to kind of convince ourselves, well, I'm a pretty good guy. And there's a lot of people that like me, and there's some that don't, but hey, you know, <laughs> we find ways of just kind of dismissing them anyway. But you see, people's opinion isn't really what matters. And the truth of the matter is, you're never as bad as your critics think you are, and you're never as good as your fans think you are. It, it's so, but if you listen to the praise, if you're, if you're doing your ministry, and you're living your life for the praise of people, then you can't accept the praise of people to build yourself up and then dismiss your critics. Like, if you're living for the praise of people, then you have to listen to the voices on both sides. And then you're going to be on a roller coaster because one day somebody's going to compliment you and you're going to be, oh, yeah, I'm, I got it. The next day somebody's going to criticize you and you're going to be, man, you're going to be lower than a snake. You're just going to be way down there feeling so bad about things and, you know, nobody loves me and I just, you know, I, why do I even do it? And, you know, your, our minds are amazing things. Like, they, they can take us on all these journeys, and, and we just get so, so twisted up. But it, the only voice that really is really significant, and, and we need to listen to our critics, and we need to listen to what people say, and we don't dismiss all that, but yes, there are rewards for doing a job well done, and, 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 and it is good to have affirmation, and it's good to have some criticism along the way. But what really matters is 
What does God think of my ministry? What does God think of my life? What would he say about, um, about me? Along the way, there are times when he speaks to us through other people and he gives other people insights into our lives that are helpful to us. And so we ought to learn from those things. When I was about 14 years old, I was, um, uh, my father was partner in a, in a business and, and I, I was working uh, summers when I wasn't in school in the business and I was probably a typical boss's son. I, I thought I had a lot more authority than what I really did because of who I was, not because of what I knew. And I thought people should listen to me because after all, I sit down with, I mean, I have dinner every day with the boss. So, uh, you know, I have an inside track here. And, and uh, so I'm sure I was a pretty obnoxious uh, person to work with uh, uh, in those days. And, but there was, a, there was a salesman that came into that business that uh, he was in his 50s and I was 14. And he took a liking to me. I don't know why, but he just took an interest in me. And he would come every week into the business to sell my dad's cement. And when he would come to sell my dad's cement, after he was done talking to my dad, he'd come out into the plant and he'd find me wherever, wherever I was working. And then he'd take me in the break room and he'd talk to me and he'd buy me a Mountain Dew. And he would just, you know, we'd have a good time together. And he'd take me here and there to different things. And, and, uh, and I, just, I just knew he didn't have to do that to sell cement. I knew he liked me. And... Um, so this particular summer, I was driving a front-end loader, and something was wrong with the power steering. And I had talked to the mechanics, but it hadn't gotten fixed. And I was driving this front-end loader, and the steering, wheel, the steering wheel kicked back, and it spun around. It had a knob on the steering wheel, and that knob caught me on my elbow, on my crazy bone. And you know how that feels? And I jumped off of that front-end loader. I went into the shop. I found the shop foreman. I told him what I thought of his ability to schedule things in the shop, what I thought of his mechanic's ability to fix things, and I just kind of told him how it was. And then I turned around to walk out of the shop, and there was the cement salesman standing in the doorway. And when I got to the doorway, he got me by the arm, and he walked me around the corner of the side of the building, and he backed me up against the block wall, and then he leaned over me. I can still tell you what his tie looked like. And he just... <laughs> my eye level, right? And then he told me that if I was ever going to be the kind of person that he thought I was going to be, I was going to have to learn a lot more about how to deal with people and how to resolve problems. And what he had just seen me do was wrong. And that I need to go back into that shop and I need to find that shop woman. I need to apologize to him for what I just said to him. And I need to tell him that I will drive that front end loader with the steering the way it is as long as I need to until he has time to schedule it in the shop. And if he never does, that will be fine. And when he finally does fix it, if he ever does, I'll say thank you. And he said, I'm going with you. And so we went back into the shop. I found the shop foreman. I did what he told me to do. And then we went to the break room. He bought me a Mountain Dew and everything was great. <laughs> now, sometimes we reject people like that in our lives because we don't want to hear what they have to say. But if you find somebody who cares enough about you to speak into your life and tell you what you've been doing wrong and how to fix it, then that's the person you should listen to. You really, we need those people in our lives. We need those people who have the courage to correct us and, and, and to be corrective uh, in our lives. And so don't reject those people because sometimes they can be God's voice to us. And we can learn and grow. And we never get done learning and growing. It's like Brother Ed was saying, you know, we're never, we're never at 100%. Why should we be shocked when we make a mistake? Why should we be shocked when we fail in something? I mean, we, we would all say we're not perfect. And yet somehow if somebody points out one of our failures, we get defensive and like, oh, I don't know. And, and we get all, all wound up. And it's just, 
But we should be listening to the voice of God in our life because we need that in our lives. Well, what are the dangers of a lukewarm church? Jesus says to this church, because you're neither, because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So, the first danger is that of displeasure. And you know, on a cold day, you don't want a lukewarm cup of coffee. Like, you want a hot cup of coffee, right? Uh, you don't want something that's tepid and just kind of half warm. Like, you want, a, you want a hot cup of coffee. On a cold day, you don't want a lukewarm Mountain Dew. You want something that's cold. You want ice because it just, something that's lukewarm, just, it doesn't do it in cold weather or in hot weather. It's just not what we want. And it's, it's not pleasing. And so if we have a choice, um, on a morning like this morning, a cold morning, if you're a coffee drinker and you had a choice, you can have room temperature coffee or you can have a cup of hot coffee, you're going to reject the room temperature coffee and take the hot coffee. Because that's what, that's what pleases you. That's what you want. Lukewarmness, just the danger is the displeasure of God and, and God's rejection. And what we see in our world today with the lukewarmness of the church, and a church that's not really passionate about Christ, a church that's passionate about all kinds of things, but, but not about Christ, it doesn't honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not honoring to Him. And when we get into leadership and we're pastors and we have responsibilities for leadership and we're supposed to be shepherding the flock and we're, we're kind of, well, we're just, we're just kind of bummed out about it and we don't really feel like doing it and we're just sort of, you know, slugging along. And it's not, that's not what God's looking for. That's not what, that's not what he wants. And like somebody was saying, how are people ever going to be passionate about Christ if we're sort of, uh, you know, just kind of going through the motions? It just, doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. Like enthusiasm inspires enthusiasm. And when we're passionate about something, other people say, wow, that's, like, that sounds like... Like you never hear an advertisement saying, uh, maybe you could buy a Goodyear tire. That would be, you know, really a good tire. Uh, it's, just, like, it's just not the way things are marketed. And, and if we're going to be representatives for Christ then we ought to be enthusiastic about Christ. Somebody in, uh, well, probably too many people from southern Ontario are here to actually tell this story, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, somebody from Dryden one time, this businessman in Dryden, he was telling me, I was talking to one of my friends from southern Ontario, and uh, I said to him, you guys have a lot of Mennonites down there in southern Ontario, don't you? And he said, yeah, we do. And he said, so what do you think of the Mennonites? Ah, he said, they're an awfully dour lot of people. And this guy from Dryden said, you've got the wrong kind of Mennonites. Like, the Mennonites we have in Dryden are the happiest people you ever met. And uh, he said, they were talking about it one day, and he said they saw this van load of uh, staff from Beaver Lake coming down the street. So he said to his wife, all right, look, like, we're going to look at them when they come past. I guarantee you they're going to be smiling. And he said, that van load of young people came by, and they were all just in there laughing. He said, see, I told you. I told the staff, you know what? You never know. Who's looking at you and what God... Somebody told a joke and everybody's laughing and God used that to convince this couple, confirm their idea that Mennonites are really happy people. And it's... But you've got to be enthusiastic 
if you want to inspire enthusiasm. Now, sometimes I think for us as Anabaptist people, our challenge with uh, how we see ourselves is our, our sense of arrogance that we are really good people and that we've done it right. And everybody else just doesn't quite measure up. And somehow, if you were to rank all the all of God's people, we as conservative Anabaptists would be we'd be at the top, and then we'd sort of you know I don't know I don't even want to name groups here, but we'd kind of go down through. Um, but we really do it right. And I, sometimes I think we're arrogant almost to the point that we can't see our own faults, and we're not. Um, willing to look honestly at ourselves and say, we're still a work in progress. We're on a journey. And uh, God isn't finished teaching the conservative Anabaptist movement what it needs to learn. We still have, we still have things to learn. And we're not a finished product. Uh, we're a work in progress. And yeah, like I told you this morning, I, I, I wouldn't want to be in any other segment of the church. But but we're not there yet. Uh, it's, it's a journey, and God's working with us. And that arrogance can be a barrier to us growing and changing and being all that God wants us to be. Because you see, the person who thinks they don't need anything, you can't help. The only people that Jesus couldn't do anything for were those that either didn't have faith in him or didn't think he could or those that didn't think they needed anything. So you have the story of the, the Pharisee and the, the publican in the temple and the, the, the Pharisee is praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this publican and you know, I do all these things, I fast and I do all the forgive and I do all these things. And, and the publican kind of beats himself on the chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know, which one went away blessed? It, was, it wasn't the Pharisee. And I'm afraid that sometimes we come too much to God kind of Reminding him of how good we are. And all the things we've done right. I was actually at a church one time where they had the, that in their Sunday school lesson. And uh, at the end of the Sunday school lesson, the, um, the teacher asked one of the men to pray. And uh, he started praying. He said, Lord, uh, we thank you that we're not like this Pharisee. And I, well, somebody missed, the, somebody missed the point of the lesson. Uh, but sometimes we almost take that approach that where we're, you know, we're just thankful for all the people we're not like. And God help us to, to be able to see ourselves as he sees us and have the humility to say, I still need to grow and I still need to change. I think one of the challenges, you know, life, we live life in stages. And every stage of life has its challenges. And uh, for me, I don't know what it's been like for you if you're as old as I am, but for me, getting into my 50s, there was a temptation to say, maybe I, could, maybe I should coast. Like, I've done a lot of stuff already in life, and... I get tired sometimes now, and I don't have the energy I once did, and and maybe I should just kick back a little bit, and and um, you know, uh, 
I could, I mean, if I didn't do much else in life, I could still kind of say, well, it was, it was good. But then if you start coasting, what happens? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe it's me, but I don't, I don't think coasting is a strategy. I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to work. But there's that temptation there to just kind of, just kind of slack off and, and not be as, as passionate. You know, maybe I don't have to learn a lot of new stuff. And I, I can blame it on, ah, it's really hard to memorize now that you're older, you know, all these things. And, and you know, people are going to give you a little bit of slack when you get old. And so you can get away with it. But should we get away with it? Or should we stay pushing ourselves to be all that we can be for Christ at every stage of life and in every decade? And keep doing all that we can for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the man that was really challenging to me in, in that area was um, years ago. I was at uh, a meeting at Kenora Jail where we were doing ministry. And, and uh, they had a meeting of all the people that would come into the Kenora Jail and, and do ministry. And the Catholic priest happened to be in charge of that, that particular meeting. And so he said, well, we're going to do... A, uh, an African style devotional here and uh, I'll read a passage and then we'll all go around and we'll all say something that stood out to us from that passage then I'll read the passage again and then we'll all go around and we'll say um, what I think that passage means to me today and then we'll, I'll read the passage again and then we'll, all, we'll go around and everybody will say if I would put this into practice in my life this is something that I would have to change in my life so, so we did he read Luke chapter 3 about how um, this person was um, the governor of this part and all the tetrarch of this and that and, and John was in the wilderness preaching and, and prepare you the way of the Lord and all that and so we went around and one of the men in the circle was he was a 91 year old man he had been a trapper all his life his name was John Lounge and um, so it came to John and John said uh, he doesn't have anything to say and so we went around and everybody shared and we read it again went around everybody shared John didn't have anything to say went around the third time and everybody shared John didn't have anything to say and then um, finally the Catholic priest said you know John uh, you haven't said anything and, and we respect you you're an older man and we really like so you don't have to do what we're doing but I'd, like would you have anything to say to us and John Lowe said well yeah maybe I would he said you know I'm 91 years old and I've been a trapper all my life he said, I'm listening to you read this passage. And he said, I'm seeing here that this person was the tetrarch of this. And this person was the ruler of that. And there were all these important people. And they all had titles. And, and you guys are all professional pastors and have seminary degrees and all those kinds of things. And, and I'm just a trapper. But he said, I see in this passage that God didn't use any of the tetrarchs or all these important people to speak to the people he went out in the wilderness and got this guy named John and he gave his message to him so he said I, I kind of feel like you know God can probably use me even if I'm not educated and all that I'm just a trapper lived in the bush all my life and, and um, he said you know one of the things I'd, I'd like to grow in one of the things I'd like to change and he said I can come into the jail here and I can share the gospel and I love to, to talk to the men about the Lord Jesus and I just can really so you put me in front of a crowd I'm going to talk about the Lord Jesus and you put me in front of a group of people I will share the Lord with them and I just love talking about the Lord Jesus and what he's done in my life but he said you know I spent so much time alone in the bush 
And I have a hard time carrying on a conversation with one person. So he said, sometimes these guys get out of jail, and I meet them on the street, and we go for a cup of coffee, and we're sitting in the coffee shop, and he said, I just, I just don't, I can't talk to them. I just, I just find it really hard to just talk to one person and just carry on a conversation. And he said, I hope before I get too old that God helps me to be able to carry on a conversation one-to-one about the Lord Jesus. Like, Praise the Lord. Like, there's a guy who's 91 years old, and he's hoping before he gets too old, God helps him to learn how to carry on a conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, I hope when I'm 91, if I ever reach that age, that I'm still trying to learn new skills for the Lord Jesus, right? Like, we never get to the point where we say, all right, now I'm, you know, it's too late. I'm not going to learn to do anything new. I'm just going to kind of go along and do whatever. That's how lukewarmness happens. You know what? That's how people become lukewarm. You know how things become lukewarm? How do you change the temperature of something? You can actively change the temperature of something. You can put it on the stove and make it hot. You can put it in the freezer and make it cold. But anything left to itself becomes lukewarm. And I would suggest to you that many of the people in our churches and, and that are lukewarm are lukewarm because they're doing nothing. Because nothing's happening. And it's not that they're, it's not that they're, they're pursuing evil. It's not that they're being overwhelmed with evil. It's just they are simply doing nothing. And if you do nothing long enough, you're going you're gonna to move to the temperature of whatever's around you, and you're just gonna, you're just, you're gonna be lukewarm. And the answer to lukewarmness is getting people on fire, and people getting fired up about the Lord Jesus Christ, and people getting, uh, getting passionate about what's what's going on, and what has happened in their life. You see, we can do all the right things without any passion. In March, uh, my wife and I will have our um, our 43rd wedding anniversary. So, I can think on it. I'm, all right. Like, I'm going to be a really good husband, right? Like, it's our 43rd wedding anniversary. Uh, I'm going to be a really good husband. So, what should I do to be a really good husband? So, I think, well, the first thing is to remember it. So, <laughs> I write it down. And I put it in my phone. So that... I won't forget. And the night before, my phone gives me a message. Tomorrow's your anniversary. Before I go to bed, I'm thinking about it. I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I say to my wife is, Happy anniversary. All right, I'm a good husband. I remembered it before she thought about it. I said, Happy anniversary. I'm a good husband. And what else would a good husband do? Well, he'd probably bring her uh, some flowers. So I go to the flower shop. I buy some roses. I bring them home. Put them on the table. Happy anniversary. Here's some roses. I'm a good husband. What else would a good husband do? Well, he might take her out to dinner. So I said, okay, don't cook any dinner tonight. We're going out for dinner. So I take my wife out for dinner. We go to a nice restaurant. We come home. At the end of the day, I can say, I was a good husband. I did all the things that a good husband should do. I remembered it. I said happy anniversary to her before she thought about it. I brought her flowers. I took her out for dinner. But I can do all that in a very methodical, emotionless way. Yes, she has the flowers. She had the dinner. I said the words. But now it's altogether different if I don't have to put promptings in my phone, if I don't have to remind myself, but I'm thinking about it. And when I wake up in the morning of our anniversary, I'm like, this is 
Can you believe that? Like, I'm married to you for 43 years. Like, that's amazing. How did I get so lucky? And you're the best thing that happened to me in, ever. And I'm just, you know, and I can be really excited about being married to her. And, and I can come home with flowers. And it's like, man, like, if I could, I would, I, I would buy you all the flowers in the world. You know, I, I just would do it. The other year when I did from our 40th wedding anniversary, I, bought my, I brought my wife one red rose every day for 40 days. And, and you know, it was just, it was, it was great. And, but but I, I could be really excited about it. And then I could take her out for dinner. We could go to a nice restaurant. I could sit across the table from her. I could look her in the eyes. I could answer her in complete sentences. We could have a real conversation. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's, it's like it's all going to differ, right? There's no comparison. I did the same things. But when it comes from my heart, it's going gonna, it's gonna to connect with her in a whole different way. And too much, I'm afraid, of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't know about yours, but too often, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is, we're just checking all the boxes. All the things that a good Christian should do. And, okay, I did my reading. All right, I had my prayer time. Okay, I, now I can... And, and But we're not passionate about it. That's lukewarmness. That's, that's what God says. That isn't going to do it. I'll reject that. That displeases me. And then you get people who get into the Christian life and they kind of, and, and I'm sure you have some of them in your church. I have some in my church. They, or our church. They, you know, you talk about things and, and they say, well, is it a salvation issue? And you say, well, not really. I mean, I wouldn't say that everybody that doesn't do it isn't saved, but, well, let's just get this down to the basics then. Like, can we cross out everything that's not a salvation issue? Like, those are all man-made rules then. Like, let's just go down to, let's just boil this down to the salvation issues. Well, what I like to say to people that do that is, all right, like, what if I would take that approach to my marriage? And I would say to my wife, she says to me, uh, would you put the garbage out along the street? Like, today's garbage collection day, would you put the garbage out? And I'd say to her, is that a divorce issue? <laughs> like, all in all, then you take the garbage out. Because I don't want to get divorced, but I don't really want to put a lot of effort into this marriage either. So, let's boil this down. What do I really need to do to not get divorced? Like, can you just give me the things that I should do so I don't get divorced? Uh, let's, let's take that approach to marriage. How's that going to work? But no, when my wife asks me to do something, I want to do it because when she smiles, I'm happy. <laughs> right? And so, it works. And, and, you know, we men are pretty simple creatures. You feed us and compliment us a little bit, we'll do amazing things for you. <laughs> and so, it's, it's, it's not that hard. It's not rocket science. But, but we don't take that approach to marriage. But somehow we think in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, well, I just want to get to heaven. So tell me what i got to do to be saved. And the rest is just, you know, that's peripheral. We don't do that on the job. You don't start a job and then say to your new boss, okay, like, let's clarify this right here on the first day. Like, what do I have to do not to get fired? Like, can you give me the, just the basics um, of what I need to do so you won't fire me? Because um, I don't really want to, you know, I just, I don't want to get fired. I need the job. But I don't want to put a lot of energy in here that's not necessary. Um, and we don't do that with our bank accounts. We don't go to the bank and say, 
what's the minimum amount I need to have in order to keep my bank account open? Like, I don't want you closing my account, but I don't want to put a lot of energy into this bank account. Like, I don't, you know, just, but I want to keep it open. But what's the minimum amount I have to have? No, when we want something to be significant in our lives, we're willing to invest in it. And yet somehow, people want to take the approach to their faith, well, just give me the minimum. Like, I want to do the minimum. That's not, that's not going to work. That's not what God's looking for. I'm sorry, but that, that's not going to do it. But to have that passion about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see, a lot of people totally miss the whole point of Christianity, and you will have people who will ask you a question that reveals how they see Christianity. Their question is, does your church allow you to you fill in the blank? You know what that shows? That shows that they think that church is about somebody or a couple of guys in a back room somewhere making some rules and telling you what you can do and what you can't do. What they don't understand is that the core of Christianity is about a relationship that I'm developing with the Lord Jesus Christ who happens to be my Redeemer who gave his life for me. And all I'm trying to do is love him and show him how much I love him. And so I look at life and corporately as a body we look at things and we say, is this going to help us to have a better relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, we're going to do it. And if the answer is no, we're not. But it's not about a list of rules. It's about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and growing that relationship and making that rich and vibrant and healthy and dynamic. That's the core of Christianity. Well, the problem with the church at Laodicea is what they thought of themselves. They saw themselves as rich, having increased goods, having need of nothing. The greatest hindrance to revival is a sense of, just a lack of need, not sensing any need. We had a man at the meal we do for the street people on Sunday afternoons. We had a man there last winter. I was sitting across the table talking to him, and obviously he's homeless, and he was uh, a little bit intoxicated, and, and so we're chatting there, and, and he was getting ready to leave, and, and before he, he left, I said to him, so can I pray for you before you go? And he said, sure, yeah, you can pray for me. I said, so how can I pray for you? What would you like for me to pray about for you? What, what are, what's some things I could pray about for you? And he thought a little bit, and he said, I don't know. What could I need? And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> a job, a house, like I could think of a lot of, maybe some help with alcoholism. I mean, I could think of a lot of things he could need. But you know what I realized? There's a person that has no sense of need. So you can't do anything for a person who is just pretty content the way they are. And too many people in their Christian lives are just, well, feel like they really need anything. Uh, they're pretty comfortable the way they are. As a matter of fact, they look at people that are really on fire for the Lord and they're not even sure they want to be that way. Um, because unfortunately, too often as people, we like to be in the middle of the group somewhere. We don't like to be on the fringes either way. We like to be in the middle. But unfortunately, the middle is where it's lukewarm, right? And so the middle is a dangerous place to be. Because you can have that sense of complacency that, well, I'm okay, I'm not as bad as those people, but then you don't want to be really passionate either. You think about the blind man that Jesus healed. You know, he's sitting there outside of Jericho and 
Jesus is coming, his, his profession is begging, and he hears this crowd coming, and I don't know, maybe his first thought was, all right, going to be a good day begging today, lots of people, and, and then he realizes Jesus is in the middle of that crowd, and he's heard about Jesus healing people, and all of a sudden he realizes the person that can heal his blindness is right there on the road next to his begging spot. And he starts yelling for Jesus. And the people kind of turn to him and say, all right, just quiet down here. Like, we're important people. You're a beggar. Just stay where you are. You're going to be begging a long time. Just stay there. Be quiet. Don't bother us. But he didn't do it. He kept calling out for Jesus. And Jesus stops, calls him over. They bring him over. And Jesus asks him an amazing question when you stop and think about it. Uh, this man is blind. Jesus has healed lots of blind people. But Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this man was a beggar. So he, he was used to kind of sizing people up, saying, are you good for a toonie or a loony or a dollar or two dollars or twenty dollars? What, what are you good for? And, and, and now I think, Jesus is say, I think Jesus is saying to the blind man, what do you think I'm worth? What do you think I can do for you? And the blind man had the sensibility to know here is the person who can give him what nobody on earth can do. And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus reached out, touched him, and healed him. You know, sometimes I think we get so beat down by life and so discouraged. And we pray about things and we give up. And we don't ask God for the things that he would really like to do for us. When I was in Dryden, I was on the board of the uh, Dryden Food Bank. We were just a real little ministry, and we were uh, we were um, uh, operating out of a little room, uh, and uh, but we were getting food donated by the grocery stores and distributing it to to poor families in the community, and uh, we were giving food to between 90 and 100 families a week, and we weren't supplying all their groceries, but we were we were giving them. Uh, food to that many families, and our budget was really small. The only the only money we needed was the money to rent this little room, and um, but we had a lot of things we wanted to do. It was a Christian ministry, and and we wanted to do Bible studies and discipleship, and we wanted to do cooking classes, and and we had big ideas about what we wanted to do, but we didn't have any room, we didn't have space, and so we said, well, we need to buy a building, and then we can do all this stuff. Like we don't want to be just giving away food. We want to be really helping people change their lives. And so um, we started checking around, and we realized it's going to cost us about $150,000 to buy a building that would do the job. So we started a building fund, and we started talking to businesses and people about donating money to our building fund, and we weren't getting anywhere. Uh, we, we, after six months, we had about $3,000 in our building fund. And there were businesses that were saying to us, yeah, well, when you get close, uh, we want to help. Uh, let us know. And we realized, you know what, people don't think we're ever going to get there. And they don't want to give us money that's just going to lay in a bank account somewhere because they don't think we're ever going to get $150,000. So I said, you know what, we need one business or one person that will give us $25,000 to kickstart our building fund. Then we can go back to the other businesses and say, all right, it's going to happen. And you don't want to miss it, so, you know, uh, this is your chance to give. And so we were praying for a person to give us $25,000 to kickstart our, our building fund. During that time, we had a booth at the trade show in Dryden. And uh, I was manning the booth there for about two hours. And during the time I was there, this man came by the, the booth and he said, oh, the food bank, the food bank. Tell me about the food bank. So I told him about the food bank. And he said, well, I've always been interested in the food bank. And, but I never met anybody from the food bank. And I always thought I'd like to know about the food bank. So 
he said, um, what do you guys need? I said, well, uh, we need spaghetti. And uh, he said, how much spaghetti do you need? And I said, I don't know, but I'll find out. Give me your name, phone number, and uh, I'll find out from them how much spaghetti they need and how often they need it, and I'll call you. Okay, so he gave me his name and his phone number. And I started to walk away, and they came back and said, what else do you need? And I said, well, we can always use craft dinner. Um, that's, that's always good. And he said, how much of that do you need? I, said, I don't know, but I'll find out. When I call you about the spaghetti, I'll tell you how much macaroni and cheese we need. And so he said, okay. And he started walking away again. And then he turned around, and he came back, and he said, um, do you know who I am? I said, not really. I know I've seen you around town, but I don't really know who you are. And he said, well, I own one of the restaurants in town, and my wife's a doctor. And we've been in town for a number of years. God's been really good to us, and, and we want to help the community, and we like Christian ministries. And I heard about the food bank, and you guys are in the food business. I'm in the food business, and it's a Christian ministry, and we like to give back to the community and give to God. And I always thought I'd like to help the food bank, and um, so that's why I'm interested. And I said, well, like, do you want to know what we really need? And he said, yeah, that's what I've been trying to find out for the last <laughs> 20 minutes and you won't tell me. And so I said, all right, well, what do you really need? And then I told him all about our ideas and our building ideas and stuff. And he said, well, how much do you need for a building? I said, well, we need $150,000. How much do you have? And he said, we have $3,000. He just laughed. He said, you're looking at $150,000 buildings and you only have $3,000. Yeah, because we know God's going to give us a building. We just don't know when. And we want to be ready. So when God gives us some money, we're ready to buy the building. So what's the problem? I said, well, people don't think we're going to get there. And so we're praying for somebody to give us $25,000 to kickstart our building fund. And he said, you know what? My wife and I will do that for you. And I said, I'm not joking. And he said, no, I'm not either. Like, you have my phone number, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. So he said, call me when you're ready for the 25000 and the spaghetti and the macaroni and cheese. <laughs> All right. So I did, and he did, and today the food bank has a building. But, you know, sometimes I think when we get finished with our prayer life, God would like to kind of circle back around and say, uh, do you know who I am? Um, do you know what I could do for you? Because we're saying, Lord, uh, like, let's not have any snow tomorrow when we want to drive home and, um, could, you know, no flat tires and, you know, could I... And, 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 it's all, and God's interested in all the little stuff in our life. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, we got big problems. we got stuff that we can't fix, right? We have challenges that are way beyond our abilities. And how about bringing some of that to God? on a regular basis and saying, Lord, I need help here. Like, you called me into this responsibility. You gave me these people to shepherd. And it's like Moses was saying, I can't carry these people anymore. Like, I'm not a nursing father. I can't do it. I just don't, you know, you've got to help me. And if you don't go with us, we ain't going anywhere. And sometimes in, in our desperation of, and our, 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 the weight of our leadership responsibilities, it's good for us to come to God and say, God, I got nothing. <laughs> like, I'm at zero here. And it's not about me anyway, which is a good thing. It's about you, and you better get busy because there's work to do here. And I'm willing to help, and I'm going to be here, and you tell me what to say and teach me how to lead these people and walk with me because we aren't going anywhere unless you're doing it. And when we really get passionate about God. But I'm afraid too often we give up and we cave into the pressures of leadership and we, we feel like it's hopeless and, and we get discouraged and we get all downtrodden and, and we get all unmotivated. And, and here we are serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who has no limits and no boundaries and, and who's performed great miracles in the past that we teach about on a regular basis and yet when we look at our own lives somehow 
We don't think he's going to do it for us. Why? I just think that for us to get passionate about Christ and about being on his team and being part of his church and being involved in what he's doing in the world and saying, Lord, I'm watching your, your eyes. I'm watching your hand. I'm waiting for your instructions. Lead me. Help me. Go with us. Then we get to where we have our true condition, where we re- realize that in and of ourselves we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And we don't have what it takes. We can't do it. And then God counsels them and he says, Buy from me gold. This is the banking center. Buy from me gold so that you may be rich. The textile center. Buy raiment from me so that you might be clothed. The health center. Buy ISAP from me so that you can see. Don't settle for pseudo-wealth, clothing, or healing. And recognize that if you're loved, you're disciplined. Things aren't always going to go well. You know what? I don't... I... I... uh, I play golf about once a year as a ministry thing when somebody kind of twists my arm into doing it with them. But... If I, would, if I would go on the golf course and every time I hit the ball, I'd do a hole-in-one, I'd lose interest in golf, right? Like, what would be the point of it? I know before I start the game, my score is going to be 18. So, <laughs> and yet somehow we think that we get into other areas of life and things ought to just always go right. And they don't. Because there are testings, there are trials, there are difficulties, there are challenges. And I would suggest to you that the more significant the event is, the more difficult it is to get through it and to pull it off. When you are facing opposition and you are facing challenges, it's a signal that you are attempting something that has significance for the kingdom of God and the devil is active in trying to stop it. And I could tell you stories of times when something significant was about to happen and the devil got really busy in trying to mess things up. And so those things ought to invigorate us. They ought to say, all right, like if that's what this is about, hey, I'm up for the battle, right? Because what the devil would like to do is to get you to back down, get you on the sidelines, get you to give up. But if you don't give up, if he if it invigorates you when there's opposition and there's challenges and you step up to the plate, hey, that's, that's what we're called to do. I remember Dave Hosteller from Sandy Ridge telling me, he was, he was a, I miss that man tremendously, and he was a, a really important man in my life, and I, just, I learned so much from him. One of the things I remember him telling me one time was, Merle, if you can't eat problems for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and enjoy it, you're never going to make it in leadership because you've got to learn to enjoy problems or you're not going to survive because that's why leadership roles exist. You know what? If everybody in your church got up on Monday morning and they just served the Lord faithfully and they did everything just and God fed them spiritually and they just... Everything went great. You, your church wouldn't need a pastor. Like your job exists because people have problems and because there's challenges. And your role is there because 
God needs men who, and women who will, who will be responsible to help people and coach them and guide them and disciple them. So don't settle for pseudo-wealth, clothing, or healing. Accept the discipline. Be zealous. And above all, repent. I think someone said earlier here that one of the reasons why David was a man after God's own heart was because he knew how to repent. And I believe that's true. And I think having the humility to repent. You know, one of the things I learned about leadership is the more responsibility that I've had in leadership, the more often I had to say I'm sorry. Um, I, I was wrong. Or I missed it. You know, it's, it's one thing to sit three quarters of the way back and tell the people in leadership what they're doing wrong than it is to be the person in leadership and try to figure out what in the world you ought to be doing. And you have decisions to make and you know not everybody's going to be happy and you know it's going to affect some people positively and some people negatively, but somebody has to make a decision and you're just in that position. It's, it's, it's not easy. But to be able to have the humility to recognize our, our, our mistakes and to, and to apologize and say I'm sorry when we make mistakes is part of it. Because if relationships are going to work, they're only going to work to the extent that there's forgiveness. Your marriage will not work very long if there's no forgiveness. You have to be willing to forgive each other. And you have to have the confidence that you will be forgiven in order for a relationship to work. A couple of years ago, my wife and I went to church and um, we uh, got to church and we got stuff out of the back of the car and we had like a lift gate on the back of the car and I thought she did have everything out of the car and I thought she had everything out of the car and at the last minute she decided to reach back in and straighten something out that was in the back of the car and I thought she was done and I was slamming the lift gate and I hit her on the head with the lift gate and it really cracked like I knew it really hurt and I, went, I felt so bad I was like I'm sorry and she's like it'll be okay <laughs> and uh, and I just, oh, I could, I just felt so bad. And I kept saying, "Oh, sorry, I am." And she's like, "No, it's all right. Like, I, I, I mean, we didn't try it." And, and, you know, she didn't come out of that saying, "My husband's trying to kill me." <laughs> like he knew I was going back in there, and he, he nailed me. But she extended forgiveness. On the other hand, I didn't walk around for the next three days saying, "She said she forgave me, but she's going to get me." When I'm not looking, <laughs> she's going to hit me in the back of the head. Uh, she's going to get me back. No, we have, the, we have the kind of relationship where she gave me the benefit of the doubt that I didn't try to hit her on the head with the tailgate and I had the confidence that she really had forgiven me and that she wasn't going to hit me on the back of the head when I wasn't looking. So that's how, it, that's, how it's good, that, that's how it works. And that's how forgiveness is so powerful. Because otherwise, we're tiptoeing around each other all the time trying to figure out what people are thinking and, and what's going on and who's going to get who and... And it just gets to be a big mess. And we ought to know that, you see, Jesus told us that based on the forgiveness that he's extended to us, we, it's only natural that we would extend forgiveness to other people as well. So you have the story of the, the, uh, the ungrateful servant. And Jesus says, that's how it is. Uh, if you don't forgive, and in the Lord's Prayer we say, Lord, Forgive me my, my debts as I forgive those that are my trespasses as I forgive those that trespass against me. And, and um, so how do you do that? But forgiveness is such an amazing thing. 
Because where would we be? Stop and think about it. Where would we be without forgiveness? Where would you be without forgiveness? What if you went through life and all of your sins just accumulated and accumulated and accumulated? What if there was never any possibility of forgiveness? We were in Asia a couple of years ago and um, almost all the, the Buddhist, people from Buddhist background that I've met that have converted to Christianity, almost without exception, the thing that brought them to Christianity was the possibility of forgiveness. Because in Buddhism, there is no, you're, you're, it, there's karma, and it follows you into the next, the next life. And so, uh, I was talking to a Buddhist monk a couple of years ago when we were in Asia, and he was saying how they have their monk chats where they get together and they talk to each other, and part of what they do is they tell each other all the bad things that they've done uh, in their life. And I was saying, so what does that do? Like, do you somehow get forgiveness then, or does that cleanse you from those things? He said, oh, no, 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 we're... We're just reminding ourselves that we've probably already done so many bad things in this life that we can't expect to be any better in the next life. Like we're just reminding ourselves of that. Think, like, what would that feel like? But you see, the miracle of Christ's atonement for our sins is so amazing, and that's where the core of our passion for our relationship with Christ comes from, because we we recognize what we've been forgiven of. Now there are some things in life that we'll never forget. They're big things and, and we'll never forget them. But when we remember them, we don't remember them with the same pain as we had when they happened. When I was uh, nine years old, I cut off my thumb. Uh, I was, uh, we were away for dinner and, and I was pushing a little girl on a swing and I was sitting on a folding chair and I went to sit down on the folding chair and I sat down to quickly and it went over backwards and I grabbed at the legs and it was the old scissors legs that went like that and my thumb got in there and it broke my thumb three places from here to here and cut it off right here around this this knuckle. So my uncle was there and he just was kind of joking and he said later and he said, oh, take it along to the hospital. They'll, They'll put it back on. So they packed up my thumb and me and took us to the hospital and got to the hospital, got to the emergency room and the doctor said to my dad, uh, well, I hear that they're starting to reattach things. And, um, uh, and it works really well with children. He said, I've never done it, but I read an article about it one time. And if you want me to try it, I'll try it. And if it doesn't work, we can always take it off later. So my dad said, sure, why not? So I sat there nine years old and watched him. They gave me a little anesthesia, and I watched him sew my thumb, thumb back on and put it in a cast, left the end open so they could see if it was getting any circulation. And it didn't. It got really black. And I was going back to the doctor. I forget how often, but I went back a couple times and it was just as black as could be and he'd jag it with a needle and I couldn't feel anything and it didn't bleed. And then I was at the doctor one time. He said, well, by the next time you, when you come back, if it hasn't gotten circulation, uh, we're going to have to cut it off because it could get gangrene and, and that would be really bad. So the, night, the day before we were going back to the, the doctor, my thumb was still as black as, as ever. And my mom said, you know what, Merle? You need your thumb. We need to pray that God will heal your thumb. And so my mom prayed for my thumb. The next morning when I woke up, that thumb was as pink as a baby's thumb. It felt so tender and sore inside that cast. We went back to the doctor and said, it's going to be all right. And it was. Got the cast off. At first this knuckle was stiff and and, uh, they probably would have put me in physical therapy now, but but they didn't then. And eventually I got it back and there it is. I still have my thumb. It's a little shorter than the other one and it kind of goes off to the side. And when it's 30 below, I have to rub it so it doesn't freeze. But hey, I have my thumb. Now I have a scar that goes all the way around my thumb. When I look at that scar, I'll never forget what happened to that thumb. I'll always remember that. But it doesn't hurt like it did 
when I cut it off. And there are some big things in life that have happened to you that you don't think about them often. And you know what? The devil often likes to bring those up to you. He likes to cast those up to you. Things are coming along and he likes to intimidate you with those things. Hey, remember when you did that? Remember that stupid thing you did? What are people going to think? Now you're trying to do this and look at what you did. I remember that. And you know what we need to do in those times? Sometimes we need to sit down with the devil and have a Bible study. And we say, yeah, I remember that. And you know what? I did a whole bunch of other stuff too. And I remember all that stuff too. But you know what else I remember? I remember confessing those things and asking for God's forgiveness. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And one of the things you're forgetting is that all those things are under the blood of Christ. And I have been forgiven of all of those things. And they are no longer part of who I am today. And I've renounced those things. They're behind me. And I am free to live for Christ and be all that I can for Christ. And those things have no significance in my life today spiritually. You have to see in the passage that Brother Ed read from the book of Revelation, those who overcame the evil one did it with three things. The blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they weren't afraid of their lives to the death. So we have the blood of the Lamb. We have our testimony of what God has done for us and the transformation in our own lives and just thinking about where we would be if it wasn't for the blood of Christ. And then, if we're not afraid to die, then Satan has lost his power over us. Because, you see, Satan's biggest tool is to try and scare us and intimidate us. But if we're not afraid to die, like, what can he do with a person who's not afraid to die? Like, the worst thing he can do to us is kill us. And if we're kind of like, well, that'd be okay... Um, then he's lost his power over us. And so the blood of the Lamb is so central. And repentance is what opens the door for forgiveness. We had a, I had a man that came to the, the outreach that we have on Sunday afternoons one day. And, and uh, he was saying to me, no, 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 my favorite psalm is Psalm 23. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, that's a great psalm. And he said, yeah, I really like that one. And he said, my worst psalm is Psalm 51. I hate that psalm. And I said, yeah, it's a psalm about repentance. He said, don't talk about it. I told you I hate that psalm. (laughs) But you see, there are so many people in life, they love the shepherd. Oh, they love that picture. But they don't realize that the path to get to the shepherd goes through the door of repentance. And uh, it's a proper view of ourselves. And then repenting of our sins that brings us into that relationship with the shepherd. And that's where Jesus goes on to say then, he's offering us intimacy. He's standing at the door. He's knocking. He's offering us so much. He says, if you open the door, I'll come into you and I'll eat with you and you eat with me. And, and then even beyond that, uh, I'll help you to, to be an overcomer and, and, and you, will, you will be part of, 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 of eternity with me. Like That is so amazing. That is like, how could we turn away from that? Well, look, I mean, even, even if we just had the forgiveness of sins, even if we just had the opportunity to, to be in relationship with God in this life, like, that would be phenomenal. And, and now we get eternity in the presence of God besides that. Like, if you are passionate about that, boy, something's wrong. Like, that's worth getting excited about. That's something that we ought to be... I mean, it, it, we, we ought to just be exuberant about what God has done for us and, and, and what we've experienced in Christ 
and our future is so phenomenal, we can't even imagine what God has in store for us. We can't even begin to picture in our minds what heaven is like. It's beyond our ability to imagine. And, 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 and with all that, we can't go through life just kind of humdrum and sort of, well, another day with Jesus. Here we go. You know, we're like just barely surviving. Um, God help us to be passionate about Christ and to have that enthusiasm for God that is infectious that leads us not only to be excited about each day of walking with Christ but also about our eternal destiny. Philip Yancey in his book What's So Amazing About Grace tells a story of a young girl from uh, Traverse City, Michigan who thought her parents were too strict and she got tired of them telling her what to do, what not to do and so she ran away from home. Went to the big city and met a man there who had a bigger car than she ever saw and he realized her potential and put her to work on the streets and and um, after a number of months of working on the streets and um, beginning to have some failing health she was out one night on the street sitting on a grate trying to stay warm and somehow she came to her senses and she thought you know my dog eats better than me and she started to feel more like a little girl than a grown woman and she decided maybe I should go home and so she called her home three times and got the answering machine the last time she left a message for dad she said uh, I'm going to get the bus and uh, I'll get on the bus that comes through Traverse City and um, I'll get off the bus if you're not there I'll understand and I'll get back on the bus so she got on the bus and the driver announced the stop for Traverse City and she realized in the next 10 minutes her life was going to, the future of her life was going to be determined. She got off the bus and walked into the bus depot and uh, in her wildest dreams she never pictured the scene that she saw there. There was not only her father but her cousins, her parents, her grandparents, even a great-grandmother, 40 of her relatives were there in the bus station with uh, a big banner that said, Welcome Home. And... Uh, her dad came out of the crowd and threw his arms around her. And she uh, started to give him the speech she had prepared. And he said, uh, there's no time for that. Uh, there's a big party at home. And if we don't miss it, if we don't hurry, we're going to miss it. That is an image of our Heavenly Father. And you know, sometimes I think of all the stupid things I've done. And I think, Maybe I'll get to heaven and Jesus will say, eh, I don't know. But that's not it. Because all those things are under the blood. And we have a heavenly Father who loves us. And when our time comes, and we get there, He's going to say, let me show you what I have for you. And we will fall at His feet and worship Him. And there will be 
for eternity. And all of these things will be passed away. And the Bible says that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. All the difficulties we've been through, all the disappointments, all the challenges, all that. He'll take us and he'll say, that's all past. You're safe now. You're with me. Everything's going to be good. That's what he's offering to us. That's why I'm passionate about Christ and why I want to do my best to see people come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where they can experience that forgiveness of sins and experience eternity with Christ. May God spare us from ever being lukewarm about what he's done for us and what he's offering us.